and uh, good evening and welcome to our first uh, live with Scottish Self-Build and Renovation. My name is Gavin Esselmont. I'm one of the directors here at uh, Self-Build and Renovation. Hope you all had a fantastic new year. Can't believe it's 2023 already, but uh, time is marching on. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, tonight, we are actually joined by Phil Pumps, who is um, one of the industry leaders here in the northeast of Scotland for um, filters, pumps, treatment, and uh, water systems. So if you're thinking about uh, building your next home, doing a major renovation, uh, this webinar hopefully will be of much use uh, to you. So um, in a minute, we'll be joined by Ben. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we hope this will be an interactive session. So if you have any burning questions about your um, own project, then please use the comments stream to um, post your comments. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, um, PM it to us and we will post the, the question live to Ben on, on air. So um, as I said, please feel free to share any comments, questions, and uh, we'll hopefully have a good interactive session. So Ben will be joining us with a presentation um, that will last for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we'll open up uh, for a few questions. We've already had some in just prior to this session, so um, quite some interesting questions. So without further ado, I'm going to be joined by Ben. So hopefully Ben is in the background. Uh, hello, Ben. How are we doing? Hi, hi. hi how are you hi, doing? Hi. Good. Yeah, not too bad. You? Uh, not so bad, not so bad there. Um, we just have to see how it goes. I was just thinking, my, my, knowing me and uh, my... Uh, passion and enthusiasm for the subject matter. I think 20, 25 minutes might be a bit optimistic for, <laughs> for how long it'll take me to rattle through this stuff, but we'll see. I'll do my best. I'll try and keep it concise. Well, we've um, done this before. I don't know if you remember, it was obviously 2020, uh, thick in COVID times. And um, it's quite interesting, actually, even when we were on screen, we had a few questions um, whilst we were live. But then also you, you guys have been getting questions and, and we see the downloads ever since. So obviously water treatment, um, and also the kind of borehole um, water systems is, is quite a, an important part of the self-build journey. And, and obviously mm -hmm. one of, you know, it, it's obviously one of these things that you have to be thinking about very early in the, in the process, I guess. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's, it's water. You've, you've got to have water to live. I think it it doesn't tend to get the, the sort of glamour that obviously, uh, the architect side of things the design of the home you know the aesthetics the people who are doing like your your lovely kitchen um kit outs and your you know you know your glamorous living room suites and layouts all the stuff that you know the nice appealing stuff that's the exciting part for for a new build that that all comes everybody's thinking that right from day one um and, you know, as, as we said, you know, back in 2021, when we did the first seminar, you do unfortunately get a lot of times where, you know, we'll get a call, people saying, right, the house is halfway done, we're ready to start thinking about the water. And it's, it's not to say it'll automatically make life harder, but depending on what stage they are at the build, you might find that, okay, where you need to establish the private water supply is is where you now have the foul water soak away and regulations mean you can't have it there or, you know, as you know, we'll kind of touch on very briefly at the end of the presentation, you may find that where well, you built a plant room, planning on what you think you'll need, and then it turns out when you've established the water, had it all tested and got the kit in, you're a square meter short. Um, and so it's it's not problems that can't then be corrected, but it's going to cost, you know, the, the customer more time and more money because they're going to have to modify this property that might be 
substantially far on in the build. So it's like I say, it's not as glamorous as some of the the nice, sexy side of of building new houses, but it's probably along with things like your electricity supply, it's the most important because you cannot live without water. It's one. Of, it's one of the themes that we constantly run with Scottish Self Building Renovation events. is is about making each build as self sustainable, as energy efficient uh, as possible, and trying to you know operate the you know be the maintenance of the house, whatever it may be, but trying to do that as off grid as possible if it makes sense. Obviously, it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense with every any kind of application. But uh, so this presentation is going to give us a quick introduction to to that, and uh, obviously after the presentation, after this webinar. People are, are uh, free to get in touch with you guys direct. You, you've been with Phil Pumps for, what was it, about 12 years or something like that? Well, I've been in the industry for about 12 years. I've been with Phil Pumps for about four and a half coming up now. Okay, so, so you know a fair bit about, uh, about what we're talking about, which is always... Yeah, uh... I, yeah I know. Well, I always, I always think um, I've got more to learn. There's always a new situation that'll come up every month. That, this, for me, it's what keeps the job interesting, you know. So good. All right. Well, listen, what I'm going to do is, and this is the first one we've done for quite some time, so it might be a little bit clunky. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, push your presentation up onto the screen. We'll just take ourselves off screen for now. And mm -hmm. if anyone's got questions in the meantime, just put them in the comments chat. We're live on YouTube and uh, face, uh, Facebook, hopefully. Um, but uh, um, and we'll, we'll see the comments coming in and we'll address them after the presentation. So um, without further ado, here's the presentation, and I'll just kind of take ourselves off screen, but we're still in the background. So over to you, Ben. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, so like I say, um, on to a challenge now to do this in 25 minutes. Um, but uh, this presentation is, is not necessarily going to be product-specific. Um, what we find is obviously the first thing that people will, will want to know is what is a private water supply? What are the realities of, of setting one up? And what do you need to consider? So we basically came up with a presentation um, to help encourage an understanding of private water supply so people kind of know where the water comes from. And once you know where the water comes from, you then understand why the quantity or the quality is, is a certain way. Um, and hopefully by helping p increase people's understanding of private water supplies, when it comes to the stage of developing their property, they'll, they'll take the appropriate steps early on in the planning stages so that, as we touched on earlier on, there's, there's no set hiccups. So, so yeah, um, so uh, understanding private water supplies. Ever such a brief bit of um, background about fill pumps before we get going. Um, so we've been going now for over 30 years. Um, we have been the industry leader in helping people develop, establish and maintain private water supplies. Um, we have, um, yeah, we, we've got our own drilling rigs. Um, we've got um, a, a, a range of engineers, service engineers who have experience in dealing with lots of different applications. So primarily domestic private water, um, which is, you know, a good deal of our business, you know, just average houses. Um, we've got obviously agricultural, we support the farming community across the whole of Scotland, not just in the northeast. Um, there's wastewater treatment sides, um, you know, that can be quite large scale commercial and industrial. Um, drainage systems, 
and of course, kind of like larger commercials such as hotels or you know really quite large factories and industrial sites. Um, for the purpose of this presentation, we're only really kind of aiming it at the domestic user. So typically, people that are going to be renovating properties and doing self builds. But if there's anyone watching that is thinking, then oh, this isn't relevant to a larger scale like agricultural. Um, or larger hospitality uh, side of things, it's technically all the same principles. You just scale up the solution and the equipment based on the size of the application. So uh, as we were just saying there, the importance of water. Um, we all know this year more than any that um, water is is exceedingly valuable and is becoming incre increasingly harder to manage and make use of so you know this year we've seen headlines like this um from you know the bbc and the newspapers you know we are we're an ever-expanding population um you know uh, agriculture and domestic use is increasing year on year but just because we're increasing our use doesn't mean there's magically going to be more water available in the same places where it was before. Um, so we actually, you know, as with this presentation, we're trying to raise awareness so that people understand their private water supplies and get the most and get the best use out of them. Uh, we had a bit of a shameless plug, but we had an article in the October issue of Farming Scotland um, that kind of dealt with this similar subject on how to protect against the growing risk of water scarcity uh, was predominantly aimed at farmers at that time uh, simply because they were owing to the amount of water they use and their reliance on water they were like the first uh, demographic that was getting struck by these water shortages um Ben, Ben, is that is that water water shortages, um, uh, you know, in Scotland and in England across the UK or globally? Or, or I mean, it, it's it's it is pretty much global. Um, I mean, I've, funnily enough, coming back to work this week, I mean, I was we were seeing then on on BBC News that, you know, I think it was you know certainly twenty twenty two was the warmest and driest year since records began, and also. The last, I think, uh, the the driest and warmest the five years, not necessarily together, but you know, individually, the the five driest and warmest years since records began have all happened within something like the last couple of decades. So you know, there is this trend that you know supplies are struggling; then they're, they're not able, without further assistance, uh, to supply the the current demand um so um yeah so i was about to <laughs> I was catching myself there i was about to divert there onto the agricultural side of things um with how water use is going but again if there is anybody who is watching that you know also has like a, a small holding or is in agriculture then you know outside of this presentation if you contact us we can obviously discuss the maybe more specific needs of agriculture and industry separately um but as i said no matter what your industry water is important we all need it so again what we're going about to go into now the principles are the same it's just purely just the scale um 
So yeah, um, what is a private water supply? Um, you know, some people may have been on mains water all their life, like myself, to be honest. And until I got into the industry, I didn't really have to think about it. So there's two main types. Um, the first type is surface supplies, which is relatively um, straightforward. It's basically any water that you are getting out of the topsoil. So you've got wells, springs, and very, very obviously surface supplies. You've got what we call open source. So these can be rivers, streams, it can be locks. Um, and then the next type of supply is a bedrock or also known as a borehole supply. So this is a supply that without drilling down to it, you can't get access to it. You know, you can you can dig uh, a well, you can dig a just basically dig the soil away, put the concrete well rings down or get stone down there and you naturally draw in the water from the soil. But unless you have got the specialist drilling equipment, such as we can provide a fill pump, you're not gonna get into the bedrock supply. Um, what we'll do now is we'll go into the main factors on the, basically not so much the pros and cons, but just again, what you need to consider when you're setting up uh, a, a surface and, uh, and bedrock supply. Um, Ever so quickly, though, will probably make things a bit more clearer uh, than my waffle. Um, but this little diagram here just shows really clearly what I was saying there about getting access to bedrock water and surface water. So in, in this picture here, you can see on the left, it described it as a water table well. Um, and literally there, you've, you've got basically the in the soil flowing through the ground above the, the bedrock which is written as shale uh, on this diagram, you've got an amount of water that is naturally flowing, seeping through the soil. And yeah, when you drill a hole in the ground or dig a hole in the ground, sorry, you'll naturally, that will naturally act as a collection point where the water will flow into or through and you can intercept the water and use it for your own needs. What the bedrock supply is, you are basically tapping into what you call confined aquifers. So, We'll come into this a bit later on, but they refer to it as an artesian well on this diagram. Um, I wouldn't worry so much about the terminology. That's what we would call the borehole. And that quite clearly, as you can see, the, the borehole goes down, goes straight through the soil, ignores the water above the shale, goes down into the bedrock, and you're hitting these trapped aquifers of water. And they're called confined because they cannot flow anywhere other than where the gap basically in the rock allows um, and in a minute we'll get on to why that can have certain benefits over a surface supply I'm quite curious ben it's a bit of a geeky question but when you're mm. boring boring through and doing the tests <clears throat> does, does the water flow up like in a scene of uh, dallas when they kind of um, <laughs> when, they, when they bore in for the for the the testing of the the, the drill wells and all this but i mean or is it quite as a bit more controlled like bubbly way or does it not so it's it's it, we get that a lot um basically so um the, the main difference between the what a lot of people particularly in the northeast because of the oil industry would imagine is you drill down you hit this water and gush it comes bursting out over the top and it's you know uh gushing out like an oil geezer it doesn't work that way all the time um 99 of the time what will happen is we'll hit the water and then the water will rise to a certain level in the borehole chamber and then stop um the reason being is that 
if you tap into an oil and gas pocket, that's exactly what it is. It's a pocket. It is, as the oil and gas has formed over however many years, it's built up the pressure. And so when you tap into it, you are like literally bursting a balloon and all, not the air, but the oil and gas comes rushing out, squirting out the top. Um, I've skipped past it now, unfortunately, but the, the little diagram we were just looking at that showed the confined aquifer, that's not a static body of water. It is always flowing. So because it's flowing and moving, the water isn't under um, like a static pressure. Okay. The reason why it might rise out the top is because it's subject to um, what's called the water table, which, you know, for anyone um, that uh, is not sure of that, basically there's an invisible line of pressure, or invisible line, as it were, that just spans across the, uh, the, the globe, really. Um, but what it is, is is that's kind of like the natural resting crash for where the water wants to be. So not always the case, but an easy example is if you drill a well or a borehole, say on the top of a hill and you hit the water, chances are because you're very high up on top of this hill, the water's maybe only going to rise a little bit at the bottom because the natural pull of the water table is lower down. Whereas if you drill at the bottom of the valley, chances are the water will rise, naturally rise almost all the way up to the surface. In some cases, it does bubble over the surface. So if you're in that low down in the, the landscape, the geography, um, the actual uh, water table, might this invisible line, might actually be above ground level. So you do get um, what is called an artesian well, which is where the water naturally bubbles out. It's still even a really, really, really strong artesian well. It's still not going to be like a geyser, like an oil well, but it could be like quite a strong, like a bubbling tap uh, overflowing the top. Um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're never going to get those big geysers coming out the ground outside of the drilling process when it's flushing the water out of the pressure. And is there one, I know we're conscious of time here, but just no, one last question for me, but is, if it does, if it's a stronger kind of bubble to the surface, does that, does that suggest that the well is better or, or the, the, the ultimate water supply to the house could be better? Or is that, is, it, is there all sorts of other kind of parameters that? Well, we'll, we'll actually come to that a little bit later in the presentation, but in a nutshell, it, you can't guarantee. It could be, it might not be, because again, if there's no active demand, if you're not actively drawing the water out of the borehole or the well, you know, um, then that water can bubble up under its own pressure. And when you are, if you are looking at one of these artesian wells, if you're stood there and you can just see the water quite strongly bubbling over, it might initially appear, oh, we've got loads of water here. But suddenly when you put the demand of a reasonably sized house, um, maybe with, you know, as is, you know, uh, an extension on uh, with an additional bathroom, suddenly you've, you might find that using tap showers, baths is actually drawing, even though the water's bubbling to the surface naturally, that's maybe not at the same flow rate that the property would be using. So as soon as you start using the water, it's possible that artesian well could sink could sink all the way down low in the well again or the borehole um okay. so really it's it's a good sign obviously if the water comes bubbling out the top it means you've got water um it's certainly better than if the water sits so low to the bottom um that it's difficult to get a pump in 
Um, but I, I guess what I'm saying is you cannot just look at water pouring over the top and automatically think you've definitely got more than enough water. You have the water. We can help you make use of it. But you still need to go through the proper processes to get that supply uh, tested, both for the, the flow it can provide and the water quality. Makes sense. So, um, so yeah, so uh, I obviously skipped ahead of a slide there, sorry. So um, kind of coming back again, uh, we'll probably touch on the points we've just discussed in, in, in a few minutes, but so again, really simple diagram. We're looking at surface supplies first, so wells and springs. Um, so whether it is a well or a spring, in essence, what you've got here is water that is loose in the soil, flowing up into a chamber or a collection tank that you know, you know the person has sunk into the ground. Um, obviously, this diagram here is just to keep it straightforward, saying it's got the concrete well rings. Um, but it equally, you know, that could be only ten meters in the ground. That could be twenty meters in the ground. Um, and what you're literally doing is, as we said, you are basically collecting and accessing that free water that's flowing through the soil above the bedrock. So the main factors of a surface supply are that it is quicker and potentially cheaper to initially develop. Um, a well will probably always be cheaper to develop than possibly a borehole, which we'll get to, just simply because you probably are only going 10, 12 meters in the soil. But that, again, is not always a certainty. Depending on how deep you have to go, you know, you, you could go far, far deeper. And with the big, you know, two by two meter minimum, usually well rings going down in the soil, that can still be quite costly. But there are factors that can affect the quantity and quality of surface supplies. The first ones being the most obvious, really, given the year we've just had, is dry weather uh, decreasing the volume of water that's available in the soil. So as we saw in the previous diagrams, if it's above that bedrock, that water can flow wherever the natural pull of nature wants it to go. So we all know that if there's water in a certain area and it's dry nearby, the water is naturally through osmosis. It's going to flow through the soil. It wants to make a balance so that there's an even spread of water. So where we do have dry water, uh, sorry, where we do have dry weather, people will find that their water in their wells or their spring collection chambers is getting lower and lower because it's flowing away from where they want to collect it. Conversely, cold weather, even though it might be wet and damp and manky, Water can get locked in the soil as it freezes. And even if that's not necessarily enough to lock away the quantity available, because the ground then becomes hard, the soil clumps together, the, the frozen water that's there itself, that will all act to restrict the flow of whatever free water is still there to get into your well. Um, and then lastly, kind of linked in more with periods of dry weather, um, we saw it quite a lot last year, particularly um, in autumn when after the really, really dry summer, we got not a prolonged period of rain, but we got two or three days of intense rain. When the soil has been dry, we get a heavy period of rain. It's like that's like a pressure washer and it just hoses all the loose dry particulate in the soil through into your well. So, you know, that can then come from your water supply and cause you problems. Um, the other sort of factor outside of the weather 
is natural and artificial contamination. So again, really straightforward, animal waste. Um, if you live near uh, agricultural land, fertilizers and sprays, you know, there might be many people um, watching or listening over time that have had issues where their water supplies come back with nitrate failures in the water, but only at certain times of the year when it's, you know, it's being sprayed. Um, you can get color from organic compounds, um, such as like anyone, again, who's established water near peaty soil knows that the water comes through looking a bit like tea. And then again, depending again on, on what's nearby the plot, you can get waste outflow and pollution that could uh, contaminate the water. So whilst um, surface supplies, there still can be viable supplies. It's not to say don't use them at all. And there are surface supplies that have done properties for 50, 60, 70 years or longer and may continue to service them throughout the, the difficulties of water scarcity in future. The fact is they're always going to be more at risk and there may be a, a higher upkeep and maintenance cost over the lifetime of the supply as you deal with these, these ongoing factors. Um, so the, the next uh, subject is the, the bedrock and borehole supplies. So as we saw from the previous uh, larger diagram, this is a bit more of, of, a, of an explanatory of detailed diagram. Um, it's showing uh, that how the structure of a borehole is, is made. So we drill down, we ignore the soil, we actually seal um, the soil out of the bedrock by use of a, of a steel casing. This serves two purposes. The first one, it just actually keeps the structure of the borehole open. As you can imagine, if you drill a hole in the soil and the earth, as soon as you pull the rods out, the soil's naturally gonna fall in. Um, but what it also does is by pulling the steel into the bedrock by a, at least uh, two or three meters, it actually creates a seal and that stops any of your borehole water escaping. Um, and it also stops any surface water or any other contamination that might be in the soil uh, getting down into the borehole. Um, so again, as that diagram shows, we've once we've drilled down, we stick a borehole pump um, on, a, uh, on an MDP pipe riser, and that borehole pump will sit at uh, a depth in the hole that we help determine and advise. And that's based on how good or, or, or how strong the flow of water is. And that will pump the water uh, all the way to the surface. Boreholes, so again, it's not really a, a con, but the initial fact is that yes, they can have a higher initial cost to set up than a surface supply. Obviously, you're not just digging a, a hole in, in the loose soil and putting some concrete rings in. You are getting a drill rig to drill down you know, maybe somewhere between 40 and 80 meters. However, um, you'll find that with a borehole, once you get a viable water supply, which is a good 90% of the time, they offer a far more reliable supply with lower ongoing maintenance, which in the grand scheme of things over the lifetime of the supply, it does, despite the initial cost, it, may, it can make borehole supplies cheaper in the long run than sticking on a well um there is an element of uncertainty you know obviously with the best will in the world no one has a crystal ball you don't know what's below your feet until you drill into it however we are fortunate where we are in the world particularly in scotland you know that no matter really where you drill 
you've got a, a really good chance of finding a usable supply of water. Our success rate of drilling boreholes out of the last hundred that that I've done personally alone at fill pumps, there's literally only been two or three that we've not been able to develop further or had problems with. So you are talking, while yes, there is uncertainty, it's still about a 97% success rate. When just um, when, when like for for people that are at the the, the planning uh, stage uh, and they secured a site, is is that the time that you they should get in touch with you guys? Is it at the very start of the process, or is it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for 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 many many reasons, at the stage where you're planning the house um, is the best stage to actually contact contact us. I mean, architects will naturally you know, they will allow for water and they will plan, right, this is where the drain's going, this is where the soakaway's going. Um, and as we'll see towards the very end of the presentation, um, what minor limiting factors there are on where you can establish a private water supply are related to building regulations. Architects, you know, they are still focused on designing the house rather than establishing and treating the water supply. So if, if we are consulted right at the beginning we can help keep the customer right we can help keep the architect right and it just means as you know we touched on at the very beginning of, of the chat you're going to avoid problems such as right we bought this plot of land we're halfway through the build oh there's no usable water here or oh we've we've designed the plant room or the garage to hold the necessary water tank or pumps but it's way too small or you know we bought a plot of land that's potentially so small that because we've got a foul water soak away, we can't actually have a water supply on this land anymore. It's it's one of those things that it, it it's not going to necessarily always resolve any problems magically by consulting us first. But what it is going to do is mean that the client can move forward with the rest of the build with confidence that they're not going to get to like halfway through and suddenly find there's going to be a lot more cost and delay in getting the property to finish state and moved in, which, you know, with the stress of building a house, you don't suddenly want like to do a big U-turn halfway through it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, Kelvin uh, is following us um, and he I've just thrown a, a comment up there on the, on the screen, but he, uh, they made a condition of plot purchase that the seller had to uh, drill the borehole and produce a drilling report mm -hmm. showing yielding quality. So. Well, th th there are other benefits as well. So obviously, aside from just peace of mind to the customer, that if they, you know, and, and as well as is, is a lot of the case, people who are like usually building a house from scratch, you know, as you said, might be off grid. You know, if, if you can, you're going to find a lovely plot of land in Scotland. I've, I've been to, it's one of the, the perks of this job, actually, is when we go out to do site visits sometimes. Oh, absolutely stunning locations. I get house envy a lot. I live in the, I, I live in the suburbs of Aberdeen, and the other week I was out looking at a house that was, that was being built in between literally two mountains with a lock in front. Uh, I could have murdered him and stolen his house. Badly. <laughs> the dream, the dream. Yeah, but um, so generally where you are building a lot of new houses, there are no utilities, there's nothing. So again, as getting the water supply established yes gives peace of mind meaning that great right we can continue on with the build and knowing we do have water but also what we can do is um you can drill the borehole if or establish a well if that's the option 
But then we can get things like even before we even talk about water treatment, you can get the pump in there. And what it means is that when you're building in some of these remote locations, you can be accessing the water from the borehole or from the well for the purposes of building, which is going to be a great help for your, your building contractors because um, they're not got the hassle of getting IBCs of water or tankers in for you know cement and other building works. And to be honest, I mean, I'm not necessarily an expert on the actual construction of a house, but I can certainly imagine that if your builders are tapping into a water supply on site, it's going to reduce the client's bill to some degree because they're not charging for tankering in water and um, oops, tankering in water and uh, and yeah. then getting in there. So yeah, the, there are certainly benefits to get the water supply known and. If if the you know if it's an option, get it established and get it pumped so you can actually make use of it throughout the build. Yeah. Um, apologies, sorry, I'm, I'm wobbling a little bit because with the presentation filling the screen and not being able to see you in in the corner, <laughs> it's it's sometimes I find myself a bit uh, uh, disembodied there. Um, so yeah, so obviously it's it's been on the screen just pretty well now that sentence. Um, some of the benefits of a, of a bedrock supply, it is a secure and protected water source, which is generally immune to the effects of climate seasonal change. As we saw from that diagram right back at the beginning, um, it's trapped in between two layers of rock. It, in in it, it's not going to go anywhere other where the rock can allow for it. So once you get that water you don't have to worry that, well, come summer, there's going to be less of it because it's flowing elsewhere. Um, and kind of linked in the fact that it is a secure, protected water source, as I was just saying there, you've got a consistent flow. And then, as we'll get on to later on, you've also got consistent water quality. Because, again, when it's under the ground, when it's, un when it's trapped in the rock, it's not like, as I said earlier on, you know, if you've got, live next to farming land certain times of the year a surface supply could get nitrates uh, in the water because of fertilizers that's not going to happen with a borehole supply because nitrates will not penetrate the bedrock um so yeah so a borehole supply will typically require extremely minimal ongoing maintenance over the lifetime of supply and that really in terms of cost is where the main saving is as we've said a well supply you can establish relatively cheaply by comparison, but you could find that over the course of the lifetime, it's going to require significant cost to keep it viable. Whereas a borehole, yeah, admittedly a higher initial um, expenditure up front, but once that's done, it's proverbial, you know, it's proverbially pittance to run it for the rest of its life. Um, so, um, that's that's Linda, I mean, Linda, sorry, just, um, it's it's a maintenance-related question. But Linda um, has come on, um, and it's it's more about water uh, treatment. But essentially, yeah. in terms of the the filtration aspect of the water supply, um, you know, can they can they, you know, in terms of getting all the the kind of filters, etc., do they come directly to you for for that um, uh, consumables, if you like, or, or would yes. they go? Through, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, um, literally, if it's to do with water, we'll do it, basically. Um, so obviously, you know, we, we will, you know, so far in the presentation, we've focused at establishing a supply and the factors of it. Um, but we'll do like, we'll help you establish a brand new supply. 
will then help you pump that water to where you need to use it. We will then do your treatment systems to make it usable. And we will therefore then help you with ongoing maintenance if, if you require servicing. But also, yeah, if, if we install something that doesn't require an engineer to do any like commissioning or ongoing maintenance, things like filters, treatment medias, yeah, we will supply spares and, um, you know, consumables um, for the lifetime of that system if you keep coming back to us. So, yeah, we'll, if, if we've supplied it, we'll be able to stop replacements for it. Um, so, yeah. And then again, you know, out with this side of things, we also, uh, it, it's related to water, but it's not related strictly to the private water supply. But, you know, again, I would say if anybody's got any questions on wastewater, I, I won't really be touching on that um, in, in this seminar but we do do a full range of wastewater treatment systems as well. So if anybody does have any questions, um, if you contact on the email address, that will be uh, as you know, as part of this, I think the little banner that we're scrolling when we're in video chat, um, or just contact me on the details on the seminar, um, we'll be able to help you out with like wastewater treatment side of things as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the focus on this one was more from the, the yeah. water supply and the drinking side of things um so so yeah um so that's probably been more than 25 minutes already already still got ways to go sorry um so so that's basically covered the the two types of supply surface and borehole and the factors involved in uh, uh quantity and quality um so kind of getting on to um the actual meat and potatoes of it how do you make the most out of your supply so again, looking at surface supplies first. So as we've kind of shown by the fact that the water is uncontained and can go all sorts of different places, the main issue facing surface supplies is the actual water you have available. So a lot of these um, springs and wells, um, they over the course of 24 hours, you could collect the volume of water you need for your house in a day but if you were trying to just pump it as you needed it direct from the well, so what we call the live flow rate, you can often find that it, it, it doesn't refill fast enough per minute to, to meet your demand. Also, what is quite common with a, a lot of established older properties, you know, they people uh, sunk wells higher up the ground and then gravity fed the water uh, to a property, which is fine. It's a great system, um, great way to avoid having to worry about getting a power supply and a pump up, up to the water source. But obviously, you'll only ever have the pressure that gravity can give you. So what you may find is a lot of modern properties with the demands of, um, you know, appliances, showers, washing machines, etc. You know, as soon as you start maybe, you know, putting these systems in an old property and you renovate it, you find that the water pressure is an issue. And unfortunately, you can't magic more gravity. Um, so so that is something that you need to consider with a surface supply. So how do you get around either the live flow rate not being strong enough or the incoming water pressure not being strong enough? So what you basically do is you need to minimize the strain on, on the supply itself. So, you know, these can be uh, achieved by the use of suitable tanks and booster pumps. So what you would basically do is you would 
collect the water supply from the well at whatever or spring at whatever natural flow and pressure it was coming in at um you collect that into a tank you know there's a couple of examples on screen here and then you use a booster pump to draw the water from that tank and that then meets the life supply of your property so if the tank is sized correctly for the demand of the application then you know you will hopefully have the majority if not a full day's water storage in your tank so you can go bananas using as much water as you like um, and you never have to worry that your tank's going to run dry in the meantime if your well can supply as much water as you need in 24 hours that can literally as we say just trickle feed the tank just keep it topped up you're not actively trying to draw that well down um, maybe causing it to dry run which can you know as you draw a well down to make it dry it can pull a lot more contaminant through as well. So it, it you're basically taking the pressure off the well. Um, you can also get around, if, if the well happens to be uh, a quite high flowing well and the volume is there, with regards to issues with gravity flow, you could always put a pump at the well itself, um, either at the surface or a submersible pump in the well, and that will then pressurize the water on at the pressure that you need for the property. The flip side of that is, you're obviously gonna to have to run a power supply up to that well. And again, maybe aimed more at older properties that are being renovated. As we've said, people will maybe have wells quite high up a hill. It could be some considerable distance getting a power supply up there. So if you if you revert back to the, the first option that I was discussing, the tanks and booster pumps, all right, it might seem initially a bit reductive if you've got a well that is really, really strong to have a secondary tank at the house to collect the water for a pump then to pressurize on, the, the, the benefit is, well, you know, you're not actually having to root power halfway up a hill. You know, you can have it in the garage or in a plant room. So it it's one of those things. Every application is slightly different. And for some, maybe the civil costs of getting a, a power supply up to the water source is is nothing compared to the the overall budget it might be that well you know you've got to clear a 400 meter trench you've got to get through trees you've got to cross someone else's land you know a lot of supplies that feed properties might be in other people's land like it's quite common a lot of rural properties the well will actually be on a in a farmer's field and so again you've maybe got to get permission from them and you know if they don't give it you're kind of back at square one so that option of having a tank and a booster pump Personally, I would say is the best option. It also means you've got everything, all equipment at the property, which just makes monitoring and maintenance a lot easier in future. To you know, if there's any problems with the booster pump at the property, I mean, you know, human nature, you're a lot more likely, and it's a lot easier just to go and walk across the the driveway into the garage or into your plant room and have a look than think, well, it's nine o'clock on a Sunday evening. I've got a traipse halfway up the hillside now to find out what's going on with the pump. So, so a lot of, I mean, it just goes back to what we were talking about uh, earlier, where all this investigative work is really quite important because it could, it all feeds, feeds into the feasibility of the project, really. I mean, mm -hmm. if, you can, if you can understand all this information as, as early in the process as possible, all these things join together and then make for a, a more kind of, um, 
you know, knowledgeable kind of decision about how you go forward. So, um, yeah, so the water, the power, um, how are you going to, you know, all this stuff could actually be a huge benefit for the construction process as well. Mm -hmm. That's lowering costs. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, as I say, it's it's best to know what you're doing um, before you start, as it were, putting bricks to mortar. So there's there's none of these surprises further on. So borehole supplies. So again, as we've kind of already covered on, um, they have in you know 99% of the time they have superior sustainability and consistency um, because you're getting water from a confined protected supply. Um, and so by nature, they're already highly efficient and durable. Um, why is that? Um, well, this diagram makes sense in a second. Um, we actually um, work with um, a water diviner who has the phrase um, that it's, it's like a borehole is like a tree in reverse. And it's actually, it's a really, really good way to think of boreholes. So if, so the starting with the diagram on the right, which is a, a slightly uh, clearer version of the diagram we saw at the beginning, you can see that you've got, like, it's referred to them as confining units, but that's basically your bedrock layers, your seams of rock, and it refers to it as a flowing artesian well, but it's a borehole. As you can see, that goes down into this layer of rock. So what you've got is, just naturally, there are areas in the landscape where water will hit the soil and it will soak down get trapped between these two layers of rock. Once it's under that rock, it can only flow where the rock allows. The tree analogy on the left, if you can imagine, starting from the very outside of the branches, all these twigs and, uh, and little offshoots, imagine that each one of them is one of these recharge areas where the water's getting into the ground. They then obviously, as you can see from the tree, flow into a couple more to make a, you know, a stronger single seam. They'll then flow into another one. By the time you get to the trunk, metaphorically, which is where you want to be drilling, you're not just like a well drilling from one source of water, i.e. the surrounding tens of square meters of soil on your land. You're actually drawing from a vast, vast catchment area of water, which is really durable because, you know... You've got sources of water spreading out, usually still in maybe a conical shape outwards from where you're drilling. But as that widens, it takes in more and more of these recharge areas. I mean, you could have water that spent maybe weeks traveling underground to get to where you are. So fed by all of these uh, recharge areas over I mean, again, there's, there's ultimately no way of knowing because you can't get underground and follow them, but it's perfectly feasible. This could be tens of square miles that this water's flowing through to get to you. And because of the, the huge fanned out range of like this tree, um, you know, even if for the sake of argument, one area had an issue with a bit of dry weather, there's not quite so much water you're not going to notice it because you've got all these other points spread out over this huge catchment filling your supply i mean even a low flowing borehole and by low flowing i mean like the speed that it's coming out the ground per minute you know we would like say 500 liters an hour is is like the the lowest really you'd be developing a borehole that's still twelve thousand liters of water a day even a large like modern property say four or five bedrooms is only going to be using even if it was being you know very luxurious with water 
maybe close to 2,000 litres of water a day maximum. So you've got 10,000 litres of water that's carrying on flowing through underground that you're not even touching. So that really is why um, boreholes are, are quite sustainable. Um, so basically, the issue with boreholes tends to be is, is selecting the right pump for the application. Now, I, again, this is something we would go into more detail with the individual customers because as with, you know, house builds, every situation is different. Every borehole is going to have a slightly different flow, a slightly different depth. The average would be between 40 and 80 meters. And there are two main types of pump available. So one pump, um, which will get the water. So the borehole pump, as we saw from my earlier simple diagram, it's deep down underground, pumping water up to the surface. And they will either, if the flow is strong enough, you can just literally have it plugged into your house and it is pumping the water at whatever flow rate you need. Or if the vault, as with the examples we were talking about, the surface supply, if you have um, the volume in a day, but not the flow, then, you know, we have pumps that are maybe more like fixed speed and they'll regularly keep a tank topped up. Again, the the benefit of, of a borehole that even has to fill a tank up rather than plug in directly is that you can set your watch by that flow rate. So we talked about taking pressure off of wells by having tanks filled by, you know, wells and springs. And you still, the overriding factor of what water you can use is your water supply. And that well, yes, you can take the pressure off it, but if it totally dries up, it doesn't matter how big your tank is, eventually that tank's going to run out of water. With a borehole, you can always rely on your tank being filled at a consistent rate. Um, and again, it's you know peace of mind. You can rely on your water as much, if not better, than mains water. Um, just notice the time, so I'm going to try and rock it through the rest of it. Um, so... Obviously, you know, if, you know, water springs and, you know, uh, springs and boreholes, the water's coming out the ground. It's ready to drink, right? You know, we've all seen the Evian adverts, you know, that's, you know, that's actually what my colleague Mark Elric looks like. We got him to model for this picture. Um, so, you know, we all know the Evian adverts. Um, it's coming out the ground, natural spring water, full of your minerals. Fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, the reality is, no matter how good the supply is, it's probably going to be more a case of this. So, you know, the, a lot of people will say to me, and it's a common question, especially for people who've maybe been using a private supply um, for years and years, you know, they take the view of, well, I've not dropped down dead, so why do I need to drink water? You know, I've lived it for 50, 60 years. Um, unfiltered water comes out the ground. What's the problem? The easiest argument I have to kind of illustrate why you need to treat the water is that if you sit down for your dinner tonight and you have a nice refreshing glass of water and a lovely meal, be it fish, steak, pork, whatever, if you're then up in the middle of the night feeling absolutely awful and you run into the toilet, what is your first thought? Do you think it was a dodgy bit of meat or I hadn't cooked it properly? Or do you think, oh, it'll have been that glass of water? So that's kind of a little bit of a, of a simplistic argument, but it's still valid, you know. Um, so it, it, it is a bit more than just there's bacteria in the water making you ill. It's essential that you get the supply adequately tweeted because, you know, 
bacterial contamination, the most obvious, that example being you eat your dinner and then you get you know ill later on in the night. But what people, I tend to find that people aren't aware of is that when we say, well, you need to treat your water for this, that and the other is because it's not a couple of glasses of water with high iron in or high uh, or low pH is going to make you ill straight away. This is if you're living in a property, you're drinking that water day in and day out. It has a buildup effect on your body chemistry. So a couple of examples, um, it's not wanting to, to, to scare people or anything like that, but it is something you need to be aware of. Things like high iron in your water. If you are drinking, um, you know, I, I did have one customer recently say to him that, you know, his doctor's giving him iron tablets because of a, a health condition. And he's like, well, cornflakes advert tells me it's full of iron. It's good for me. The flip side to that is, well, yes, but, you know, water is good for you as well. We are, as being 70% plus water, we can still drown, though. And it's the same thing with all the mineral and chemical content in your water. Everything to a point, but you take it past that point, it becomes a hazard. Iron, you know, too much iron in your blood, it can cause um, problems over time. Some of them there, stomach problems, nausea, diabetes, um, other issues, if your water is too low pH, it's acidic. So the issue there tends to be the effect it has on, you know, any pipe systems in the property. Uh, it'll leach metals from pipe and fittings. Things there are obviously diarrhea, vomiting, pain, can also damage teeth and gums. If you have excess nitrate, so looking at that example we touched on earlier, where if you live in near farming land um, and you have, uh, you know, seasonal times of the year, farmers put in fields with nitrate, you know, there's a few things there. It obviously says like, you know, weakness, heart, uh, excess heart rate fatigue. The most common one some people probably be aware of is what they used to call like blue baby syndrome or similar. That is that the nitrate, you know, is not allowing the body to get blood around, to get oxygen around the body. So, you know, particularly the very, very young or the elderly um, potentially more prone to that. So, you know, not everybody's going to notice that straight away. Um, so, again, how does the water get these forms of contamination in? Well, again, it all depends on the geology of where you are. And this is still going to be the same, whether it's a borehole or a well. You know, whatever soil or rocks the water's flowing through, it will absorb certain metals. Gases can be absorbed. And again, if the water's flowing through very limited and restricted geology, the water does not get an, a, a balanced diet of its own, and that can make the water acidic. Other things, you know, waste uh, from animals and plants. So as we talked earlier on, you know, animal waste and feces, peat turning water, um, you know, that kind of tea colour. Um, and then, as we just said there, farming may add night rates and other chemicals to surface supplies. Uh, a quick little bit of visual guide to, you know, how this also affects your pipe system. So aside from, you know, your individual health, you've got your health of your pipes and your plumbing. So if, if you spent a lot of money building and renovating a house, you don't want after only a few years getting a bill from the plumber because he's had to remove piping, replace boilers, because you have in this example here on the left, you this is what a few years of reasonably moderate to high iron contamination in your water can do. And on the, the right, that's manganese. 
So basically, when it's down in the ground, there's no oxygen, the metals just stay dissolved in the water. As soon as they come up into your pipe supply, into your water tanks, oxygen is, or more oxygen is present, which encourages these metals to actually oxidize, to rust out of the water and form solid particulates. And unfortunately, they also cause like these blockages and buildups, and you just, you just can't get rid of them. Once it's in the system, you're talking about removing pipe and pumps. This is an example of low pH. So if you've ever seen that blue-green staining in a sink or an appliance, it's because basically your copper pipe's corroding and that blue-green staining is your copper pipe. You know, that, that's the debris, the residue from this, this acidic corrosion. Oops. Um, so as we touched on earlier, um, when you asked the question, we have, a, you know, we have the ability nowadays to treat the water and we have kind of like the we've got the lead on the best treatment systems, the most efficient and the most long lasting treatment systems for water supplies, be it on the, the left, a slightly small scale application, maybe just a couple of filters, one treatment vessel and a UV unit to maybe slightly larger applications that might be on the right. So that um, uh, could be feeding multiple properties. If maybe you are a landlord and you have tenanted properties, or it could be that that's treating a farm um we also offer like smaller scale uh, applications in little kiosks which are really useful you know those previous examples we saw even the smaller one you know you're going to need a garage or a little plant room for it and a lot of the times when it's minimal treatment people might not have the space certainly in older smaller prop cottages so we offer these little grp kiosks that can be used to house your treatment system uh outside oops so again, kind of skipping over this, you know, particularly with new builds and renovations, we've pretty much already already covered this. When should you start considering um, the water supply? As we've said several times now, literally day one. Once, pretty much, once you've got your initial design of the property, and it then comes to start thinking about the actual plot you're building on, contact us. Get it sorted. Get it known from day one, and you will be saving money and time and a lot of stress uh, as, as uh, later on in the build. There are a couple of restrictions, um, and they, they don't tend to be for planning. Um, they just tend to be practical. So it's not advisable to establish two water sources close to one another. So again, why you consider water at day one, if you're building next to and your next door neighbor has their well or borehole within 20, 30 meters away, you're wanting your water supply. It's not impossible, but it's certainly worthwhile looking at it first before just plowing in case you find you're stealing water from one another. The other thing, which is just a flat rule, is building regulations and SEPA guidelines say you cannot have a water source within 50 meters of foul water soakway. And that, again, is another thing that comes up. It has happened to me a couple of times with customers they have gotten so far through the build we've gone to site to establish their water supply and they've only got i think the last one i dealt with the, the client only had 46 meters at any maximum point away from where his foul water soakway was and so unfortunately I, I mean i don't know what he's gonna have to do in that case he's actually genuinely stumped he's trying to seek permission to establish a water supply on neighbor's land and again, it's not saying he won't be successful, but you can imagine the headache he's now having dealing with neighbors and what additional costs that may have, rather than getting the water supply in first, 
because it may well have been that an alternative wastewater system could have been installed, not affecting his water supply. Um, so, yeah, apologies for that. I kind of certainly overran the 25-minute guide. Um, it, it is a lot of information to take in, and I apologize um, to anyone. Sorry if... if uh, I was any confusing at any points or equally if I sped over any particular topic at any one time. Um, but yeah, um, it, it tends to be with water. It's not actually complicated as such. What it is, is there's lots and lots and lots of options. And it's the, the tricky side is, which is what we can help you with, is going through all the myriad of possible solutions and getting the one that will work for you. There are certainly solutions out there that I've seen people install because they kind of work, but then what you'll find is it's a much higher maintenance and upkeep cost in the future because it's not been the best solution for them. It's kind of like a, a halfway house. So so yeah, if, if there's anything... Uh, that has either apologies uh, I've been confusing about or I've skipped over, then as the details on screen there, please, please, please give us a call, give us an email. Um, and as is apparent, I will quite happily talk about this subject till the cows come home. <laughs> ben, just doing a quick mic check. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you, yes. Perfect. I had a couple of technical issues. And one burning question. I know we're just a couple of minutes over the one hour um, allocated time, but just in terms of the commercials, just a quick fire, one minute, how much does a borehole cost? Is, is that even possible to answer? Or... Yes. So first and foremost, I would say it's going to be every single borehole is is slightly different um, because, again, it's dependent on from the drilling side of it, how much depth there is to the soil and then how much water is there from the treatment side of it, what each individual borehole based on the rock um it um what it's its recipe is what contaminants need treating but over so there is always going to be variance but overall a sensible budget from start to finish so for drilling and for treatment and pumps i would say around about somewhere between 13 and 15000 pounds excluding vat all in um you will get having said that i've done plenty of boreholes that are, are lower than that but that is, if you want to kind of plan for the peak cost, then yeah, thirteen to 15000 is kind of like the upper peak. Um, I have equally recently done one uh, for a client that, you know, all in, I think, was only about £10,000. So yeah, there's variance there. Is that kind of testing all the kind of the initial investigators? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's literally everything from start to finish, from us drilling it, getting it tested, getting the pumps in, getting the treatment system in. Because again, you could you could have one person who drills a 60 meter deep borehole and barring the joke earlier on, it comes out like the Evian spring and they just need a filter in a UV unit to sterilize bacteria. You might have someone who drills a 40 meter deep borehole, but because of the nature of the rock and the geology, they need treatment for iron and manganese, for low pH, um, maybe to take the color out of the water. So they have maybe on the drilling side, it's been cheaper, but conversely on the treatment side, it, it's been a higher cost. Um, as I said, the important thing is if you get it done right, 
then whether or not you are the upper or lower end of that initial budgetary estimate, however it is done, that's, you know, ongoing, the cost is minimal. Um, and But again, as, as indicated by that brief example, depending on the depth and the geology, it can, it can vary, you know, depending on, on what you need, but 13 to 15 grand, excluding VAT is a is a sensible peak cost. And obviously that's just that's the CapEx cost, but the whole life cycle cost is something that needs to um, be taken into consideration quite hugely because it's just one part of the overall investment, you know, in the in the life cycle of the of the property. Exactly. And and as we said it, it it's multiple things. It's you know it's peace of mind. Once you've got an established borehole that's viable, it's as reliable, in fact I would argue it's more reliable than mains water because your borehole supply is never going to affect it, never going to get affected by a hose pipe ban. Your borehole, or you know, again, equally, um, you know, a, a surface supply if it's done right, um, you know, you're never going to be short because um, you know the Scottish mains water say, well, look, the the pipeline arrives at the bottom of your drive. They're only obliged to give you one bar of pressure at the point which the spur line for your property comes off the mains pipe. If your property's then 30, 40 meters up upwards, up a hill, then you might have naffle pressure by the time you get to the property. You don't have that problem with your own private supply because you have it pumped and controlled under under your own equipment. Kelvin um, has um, posted, we have two boreholes. The first one failed. And the second one is nearby within a few meters. Can this contaminate our supply and therefore should it be filled in? Um, no. So I was just trying to understand. So they've had two, so he said they've had two boreholes. One was dry, one was viable. They're worried that maybe the viable one is maybe pulling something through from the dry one. Um, no, you, you wouldn't really have to worry about that at all. Um, it's simply because. If if there's if the borehole that's dry is dry, because the, the water's confined in the rock, so even between what we call veins, which are those like seams of water fl flowing through to you, if there's not physically a channel, um, you're not going to get anything from that borehole, from the dry borehole seeping through. That being said, I mean, if you wanted to fill it in, absolutely, it, it's not a problem. Um, if you don't fill it in, you do it would still be recommended to seal up the top of the dry borehole um and that's just again mostly less to do with what we would be concerned of and just general seeper just because there's nothing down there in a dry borehole doesn't mean that if if you uh introduced some contaminant in there seeper might still not be happy about that um, so the way we leave boreholes, even if they are dry, we still seal them off with a, a quite form fitting, uh, PVC cap, which unless someone deliberately removes it, or if you had like livestock in there that was rubbing up against the borehole, that's not really going to come off. But what we could also do if anybody is concerned, um, we obviously, you know, we're not civil contractors, so we wouldn't come with like cement and fill it in. But if people were just wanting it sealed off at the surface, then yeah, absolutely, we could still come out with a secure sealed well cap and seal that and seal that thing up, and that that really then is is not going to come loose um, without deliberate malpractice by someone. Um, 
So that that would be a way of protecting it. And to be honest, it would probably be cheaper than a, a potentially an awful lot of concrete. Yeah. Peter is asking a question. Do boreholes have to go vertical or can they be at an angle in order to extend the distance away from a soakaway? Um, we would say vertical. Um, it is so it is hypothetically possible that you could drill an, an angular borehole, but um, it's easier and cheaper basically to go straight down and it works better with the pump. Um, being up front, our drilling equipment, as is the same drilling equipment of 99% of all of the companies out there, um, it does just go straight down. It won't go at an angle. From a technical perspective, um, there's more risk at drilling at an angle that the the rods could get caught or you know if you're drilling straight down it's easier because the other thing as well if you are drilling at an angle depending on how what the gradient that might be if it were possible what you have is to some level until it gets deep enough you've got your borehole running under an area of land now if you ever develop that land in future you're going to limit what civil's work you could do. So say, yeah, if you were, people with land might say, I'm going to build another property on that bit. Oh, well, you've actually, you can't build it where you want to, or you've got to build it further out because as soon as you start sinking foundations, you're potentially catching the borehole, the structure of the borehole, because it's, while it's going down, it's still going laterally. You know, if you were looking on the surface, it's still going laterally outwards rather than just straight down. Drilling straight down from a technical and practical perspective from the people like us drilling the boreholes, it's the easiest and best way to do it with the least amount of complications. Um, and it also means that in future, um, you you only have to worry about basically the couple of square foot at the surface where the wellhead is. I mean, you can then, if you did want to build another property or did want to put an extension on your existing property, as long as you're about five meters away from the borehole, you're fine. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, I would say, first of all, it's unnecessary. And then secondly, it's unadvisable to consider getting someone in who can drill um, like at an angle. Great. Listen, Ben, um, I'm having a little bit of connection issues here. Hopefully it'll clear just in a, 10 seconds. Yep, I'm back. Um, so listen, we are running out of time now. We already have. So listen, what we'll do is um, there's some questions that have been posted that we haven't managed to get to. So we'll, we'll answer them in the channel and also privately to the people that ask for the questions. Um, we will call it a day there. Um, anyone that wants to get in touch with Ben and Phil Pumps um, can get in contact through your, 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 um, your website. They can get in contact with you on your phone or also on your email as well. So we've just got the details at the bottom there. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, we're, we're based for anyone in the Northeast area. We are based at Thainston, just above the Mart. Um, so Monday Monday to Friday, we're open at half seven in the morning, um, if anybody wants to come into the trade counter. So Monday to Friday, half seven till five. And then we are also open uh, on a Saturday morning. Admittedly, that is just the trade counter. However, um, if anybody desperately wants to speak to me uh, in person, then if you touch base via emails and if you can only make it in on a Saturday, then I can. I do work some of the Saturdays anyway on a rotor, 
but if there's a specific Saturday you would like me to be in there, then I'm sure we can arrange something and I'll I'll be in and have a chat with you on the Saturday morning, um, 8 till 12. Perfect. Listen, Ben, thank you very much for your time. Uh, my connection at this end is uh, breaking down rapidly, so I think we'll give it a close. But um, thank you, Ben, and congratulations on your 30 years um, anniversary for Phil Pumps. Um, it's not a, an easy achievement uh, in these days of business, but uh, well done, guys. And uh, we will call it a day there. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Gavin. Cheers now. Cheers now. Bye-bye.